These stories sometimes contain mature content and language for adult audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Forgiveness, I think, is actually more for the person that's hurt than it is for the one who isn't because they don't think about you, but you think about them and they're renting space in your head. Welcome to Digging Deep, True Stories of Big Change. Each episode of this podcast digs deep into one person's story of change to reveal a little bit about how and why we make big changes in our lives and what can be learned from these experiences. I'm your host, Kelly Styring, founder and principal researcher from Insight Farm, a consultancy that helps companies learn from their customers and consumers through deep conversation and connection, often told as stories like the one you'll hear on this podcast. So let's get the conversation started. Today's guest on Digging Deep is Christian Sika, who after a long path of childhood trauma and abuse, and later addiction, has emerged as a flourishing artist. Listen as Christian describes turning pain into something beautiful through his work as an artist, and finding a path toward forgiveness and self-discovery through his servant's heart. Let's start with where you are now in life. What's up with you? The truth of the matter is, is with creativity, when you actually have a lot of stress, in situations, it's actually a blessing to do that because just a little sketch or something to make yourself laugh. Like I would sit and sketch, make silly cartoons and things to make myself laugh. So that's a it's a real big gift that I use a lot. I'm actually looking for another role. I put in some applications for some uh, some for some designers jobs, and I have a feeling that something's going to come my way. Can you talk to me a little bit about the art that you do just for yourself? Well, the art, I like to paint portraits because I know that I think people's faces are everybody's unique. And that's the one thing that I learned a long time ago is there's only one of us. There's only one of you. There's only one of me and there'll never be anyone else like us. So if I can take some pictures of someone that I find their face interesting or I can see the age in their face or I can see, you know, the, the pain in their face, if I can take those portraits and make them, you know, paint them, it's actually like I'm kind of like stepping into their into their mind and into their mindset. And what does that do for you to step into their mindset? It actually gets me out of my own. It makes me realize that I'm very lucky to be able to do what I do. So let's go back and talk a little bit about your formative years, because there were some early traumas for you. Yeah, I was, um, the, the memory that's emblazoned in my mind was before what was when we actually, when we actually, I was laying in my bed, that bunk bed, my parents were there, I was laying in my bunk bed. And my mother comes in, she says, and I'm like playing this little game as a kid. I'm trying to lift the house. I'm putting my legs on the ceiling because the bunk beds were pretty high. I uh, was trying to lift the house and my mom says, you know what? You have to be a man now because you're going to live with your grandparents in New York. And we were at Tennessee. We were in Tennessee at that point. And uh, I just came out of the blue and we ended up going to New York. But some formative memories before that were in 1977, I remember the sheriff's department coming in and taking my two baby sisters away because they weren't being taken care of. And uh, I remember that because I saw Elvis's funeral on the TV as pink, as pink hearse. And I'll never forget that. Their names were Marie and Antoinette, but they were adopted. So their names are changed now. And then after that, it was in 79 when I actually was put with my grandparents. My grandfather never really liked me very much. I never understood why. I guess I had a little bit of a rebellious spirit. I really don't understand. But um, he was uh, very abusive, very vulgar in his language. He was physically abusive. And he abused me one time sexually as well because I was out catching fireflies with my brothers. And um, 
he called me in the house and I had a pretty bad sunburn and he put, uh, put some salve on my back. And the next thing I know I'm laying on my belly and it's just, that happened from there. Those are all pretty painful incidences. Can you talk to me a little bit more about what ultimately happened to your parents? My parents actually were arrested in 1981. We got a phone call. I was at my grandparents' house. and I remember we were in the kitchen. They had the old rotary phone. You know, it is in the 80s. And the phone rang and I answered the phone because I thought it was cool to answer the phone. So I answered the phone and it was the it was like the, the state state troopers. And they said, Donald Sika is dead. And my grandfather's sitting there at the kitchen table. And he says, I say, I said, Grandpa, Dad's dead. And he actually teared up for the first time that I've ever seen. I had ever seen him do it. He said he wasn't that bad of a guy, but anyways, they because that's what they named the baby was Nicola, but his name was called Donnie Jr. So we didn't find that out for a little while that until it came on the news actually that it was uh, I was a baby that was that was dead, and my parents like didn't take care of it. He was sleeping in a styrofoam crate and all kinds of things. He actually weighed like four pounds when he died, so they got scared and um, someone that we don't know bailed them out because they had a million dollars bail because it was a serious issue back then. And they had a million dollars bail and they jumped bail and they went to Canada and how they got caught. My, I don't know if this is hundred percent accurate, but how they got caught is we went up there to visit my mother and father in Canada. And I guess the FBI got them and extradited them back. And so at this point you're living with your grandparents, you're still having traumatic experiences. Um, every day I would get, every day I would get beat. I got beat once with an extension cord so bad that I ran up to one of the neighbors and they called the state troopers. And I saw the, I saw my grandfather and the state trooper, a big wad of hundred dollar bills. Now your life could have taken a, an even darker turn, but somehow you've chosen a different direction for yourself. Can you talk to me a little bit about how that came about? Back then I was just, I was angry because I didn't understand and then again, then this built into me that I want, I had to understand everything. I don't understand why. And there's a lot of things that happen that you're never going to understand. After that point, after he had done what he had did, what he had done, I actually got pretty, pretty rebellious. But I went to court and they took me out of his home, and put me in foster care. And I went through 13 different foster homes. And there was all kinds of physical abuse, verbal abuse. And there was a couple incidents of sexual abuse there as well. And the more and more it happened, the more angry I got and the more rebellious I was. And then I ended up um, being in a group home and it was a Catholic program. And I really think that was the first seed that I ever had to plant faith in my heart because the father was really nice to me. That was the first real father figure I ever had in my entire life. And so flash forward for me to this kind of culminating event, this convention or retreat. I was, uh, I was in my thirties and I had been, I was addicted to alcohol. I had been on Adderall on, on like Ritalin and Adderall ever since I was a kid. And I was abusing those very badly. And, uh, I went to this, went to this place that, um, was, uh, was a Christian rehabilitation facility. So I got clean from alcohol and I've gotten, I got clean from the Adderall, but I still had an issue with that up to five years ago. So I've been clean from the Adderall completely for five years. And the alcohol, it's going on 15 years. So I got delivered there. So they actually had this convention called Trace Diaz, which means three days. They send you there with a bunch of other men. It's all about service. They have you wait on each other and things like that. And I have a servant's heart. I always have. So that's the one thing that I've actually been able to stand on. 
is the fact that I enjoy serving people. I like to make people smile. I like to make them feel good about themselves. So by proxy, it makes me feel good about myself. That's what I learned about myself. And then I learned about Jesus and what he actually did. And it broke me down really bad because no one had no one in my entire life had ever done anything for me that was anywhere near what Jesus had done for me. And at first it was like, wow, that's unbelievable. But when it finally hit me, it was overwhelming and it changed everything about me. So I remember this one incident that I was that, that, that we had a cross and they handed out heart shaped papers and they said, you need to write down who you need to forgive and we're going to nail it to that cross and then we're going to burn them. And I wrote down my name first because I realized at that point that I had difficulty forgiving myself because when someone gets in those situations, it's so easy to blame yourself for what's happened. But at that moment in time, it was real to me. It wasn't my fault. What could I have done as a 10-year-old kid to deserve what I got? I couldn't have. And once I got to that realization, it opened up doors for many other things as far as like me forgiving myself, forgiving others who had hurt me and used me and abused me. So how do you think these foundational experiences that you had, both the traumas and the recovery, how do you think they inform your art today? What they do is they actually take my pain and turn it into something beautiful. My art allows me to create something from nothing. I see this blank canvas or this blank piece of Bristol board or this blank piece of paper, or the blank Adobe Photoshop canvas. And I'm like, well, let's see what we can do. And then you could like see it build up piece by piece, bit by bit. And it's, it's just, it's an exciting process. And it makes the person that I'm doing, let's say if I take the portrait and I make the portrait of the person, I show them that portrait. They always are like amazed and smile and they're like, wow. And I just always say, well, that's you. And it makes them feel good about themselves because I see them in a different, I probably see them in a different way than they see themselves. How does it make you feel about yourself? It makes, I I like the creation process. I I can't really explain how it does. I don't really have like an actual feeling about it. I enjoy what I, what it makes me feel like is feels, makes me feel content to make the person that I'm painting or drawing, make them see themselves in a different way. That makes me content. And that links back to your feelings of service. It absolutely links back to my servant's heart. And then also links back to the positive positivity because I see everyone as a pot in a positive light. This life that you've had could have gone, it, it did go in some dark directions. I actually was at a psychiatrist and they were evaluating me. And what he said was the most shocking thing I've ever heard in my entire life. He said that I'm absolutely floored that you're not a serial killer. I said, I'm not because I don't have that right. And I choose not to inflict pain on others because I know what it feels like. I actually got to a really dark spot in my early twenties or thirties. And I have massive scars on my wrist where I actually tried to kill myself. And um, I was, I got, I was in the hospital for a while because I got to that dark spot. And what I did when I got to the hospital I had all the stitches in my arm and something came over me and I kept telling everybody about how you are. I actually was feeding into them. And by me feeding into them, I telling them that you're only one person. There's no one else to ever be like you ever again. I actually got completely over my depression that way. And it was helpful to me. It really was because that's the absolute truth. There's only one of us. There's never going to be another. So live your life the way that you want to live, that you need to live it. Be positive. Be kind, be generous, because it always comes back in the long run. Do you think when you were telling people that, that you were talking to yourself as well? Absolutely. 
Absolutely, without a doubt. But I couldn't talk to myself at that point. Do you understand what I mean? I do. I could talk. It was easy to talk to others because I'm not talking to myself. Many people go through traumas in life and don't come out of it the way you have. Do you have any specific advice for people dealing with trauma today? All I can say is there's an old adage that if you fall off the horse, get back on it. Because the only one you're hurting when you don't continue forward is yourself. But the truth is, if you have a positive attitude about it and you say, okay, these are the issues we have. These are the things we need to, you know, we need to take care of. These are the mountains we need to climb, if you will. Then it makes things a lot easier. Everything is a blessing because if it's negative, it lets you walk through someone else's moccasins. And if you learn something from it, which is entirely your own choice, if you learn something from it and don't let it weigh you down, then the next person who comes along that has the same kind of problem, you can actually speak into their life because you walked in their moccasins, so to say. Biggest thing is that I know that God is real and I know he loves me and I know he loves everyone. And that's the fact. And that kind of love is unbelievable, insurmountable, unexplainable. Thank you for joining us today on Digging Deep, True Stories of Big Change. I'm your host, Kelly Styring, founder and principal researcher from Insight Farm. At Insight Farm, we help companies make their products better through conversation and connection with consumers, often told as stories like the one you've heard today. If you'd like us to help you with consumer research, or if you'd like to participate in this podcast and tell your story, reach out at www.insightfarm.com. We look forward to the conversation.